Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. This audio is concerning Luke chapter 16, verses 16 through 31. It covers the story of Lazarus, Lazarus and Dives. The previous audio covered verses 1 through 15, which was the parable of the unjust steward. In this chapter in Luke 16, Jesus is jumping on the Pharisees for their ungodly attitude toward riches. So that's the theme, God mammon here. We'll start with verse 16. Oh, before before we get into the story of Lazarus and Dives, Jesus is going to bring up two points about the law. And what he's going to try to do is try to show that he is not against the law of Moses. He's been jumping on the Pharisees so long and so hard about their traditions of men, their law, that it would be very easy to then think that since Jesus was against the law of the Pharisees so much, he was also against the law of Moses. Well, in these two examples that I'm going to give you in the next two verses, Luke 16:16 16, 16 and Luke 16:17, in these two examples we see that no, Jesus is upholding the law of Moses, not the law of the Pharisees. And when we get down to the parable of, excuse me, the story of Lazarus and Dives, we'll see that Jesus upholds the authority of Moses and the prophets. And that's a point that not many people take notice of. But Jesus is, he, all through here, I think we can see a subtext, if you will, an implication that, hey, I'm not against the law of Moses. And I think that's why Luke threw in these two verses, 16 and 17, which seem sort of out of context. Well, let's start with the first one, Luke 16:16. 16, 16. Jesus says this, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, and everyone is strongly urged to enter it. Now, Jesus is saying the law and the prophets were until John. The implication is that the law and the prophets were in effect and were valid until John the Baptist. And then he's saying, well, since then, now things have sort of changed here since John the Baptist is now preaching the kingdom of God rather than the law of Moses. However, we do point out that in another parallel passage, excuse me, not in another parallel passage, in the next verse, Jesus says, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter for the law to drop out. And I think what he's saying is, look, John, the law and the prophets were until John, and there's not one stroke of a letter and the law is going to drop out. Now, of course, the implication is the law and the the law of Moses will drop out. The law, the, the jot and the tittle, the dot and the stroke of the law will drop out when Jesus uh, establishes his kingdom. He doesn't give a time frame here in these passages, but in the the similar passage in Matthew 5, he says, I assure you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of, of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. And of course, I think that refers to Jesus dying on the cross when he says it is accomplished, it is finished, until all things are finished. And then the law of Christ kicks in and the law of Moses is obsoleted. But until Jesus dies on the cross, the law of Moses is still there. And don't think, and Jesus is saying, don't think, just because I'm jumping on the Pharisees and their laws and I'm jumping on Moses and his law. All right, going back to verse 16 in Luke 16. The good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed, that will be by John, and everyone is strongly urged to enter it. My Holman Christian Study Bible translates that last phrase that way. The ESV has everyone forces his way into it. Now, the meaning of this phrase is disputed, as the NIV Study Bible says, and here's, well, here's what the NIV Study Bible says. It probably speaks of fierce earnestness with which people were seeking the gospel. In other words, everybody's forcing their way into the kingdom. 
And that's what the ESV says. So I think the NIV is right. The ESV translation is right. That makes sense. Everybody wants to get in so much, they're banging on the door, let me in. That's good news. Of course, that's an implicit rebuke to the Pharisees. People hate you, Pharisees, but they love me. <laughs> what are some options as to what that phrase could mean? Everyone is strongly urged to enter it, or the violent take it by force. I think the King James has it. Everyone forces his way into it. The ESV has it. Could be persecution, Gill says. In other words, everyone is strongly urged because of persecution to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or it could be that the kingdom of God comes by force. The kingdom of God has been proclaimed and comes by force to everyone. That means the power of God unto salvation to many souls and the power of God urges people to enter the kingdom. Or it could just be in general people want to get in and so they want to get in. That's the third option. That's the one I believe in. And that's where the ESV has it translated as. John Gill says, the ardency and fervency of spirit of those who want to get in. And I think there's your simplest solution right there. So John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Covenant order. Jesus is the new prophet of the New Covenant order. We go down to verse 17. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Again, Jesus is trying to reinforce the validity of the law of Moses to avoid against misconceptions of his anti-Jewish legalism teaching. Now, it sounds like that when you say heaven and earth won't pass away before a stroke of the law drops out, that means that the law is going to pass away until the end of time. Well, that can't be because obviously the law did not last till the end of time. Are we still stoning homosexuals or rebellious children? Are we still not planting tomatoes and butter beans together in the garden? Are we not wearing clothes that are a mixture of cotton and textiles? Uh, excuse me, cotton and chemicals, chemical fibers? Well, of course we are, because the law's not here today. So what does that mean? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away. It's hyperbole. In other words, we could read it this way. Heaven and earth will not pass away before one stroke of the law passes away. It ain't going to happen. You might as well tell me that heaven and earth is going to pass away before one stroke of the letter passes away. Now, that shows that Jesus is really emphasizing the point. He says, look, it ain't going to happen. Not one stroke of the letter is going to drop out. Again, we go back to Matthew until all things are accomplished. When Jesus dies on the cross, then they'll drop out. But not now. Now, David Chilton, the Orthodox Preterist theologian, says that this phrase, heaven and earth, refers is a rabbinic expression that refers to the Old Testament nation of Israel. So then you would read the verse this way. It is easier for the Old Testament nation of Israel to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. In other words, the Mosaic kingdom is going to be around here forever. That's not or until all things are accomplished until Jesus dies. The Old Testament nation will be here. As long as the old Israel is here, so is the law. But when the new Israel, the church comes, the law is done away with. That's a possibility. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert enough on rabbinic literature to know whether Chilton is right or not, but I thought that was interesting. The easiest way is to say it's just hyperbole. Another option of this is that the law is fulfilled in Jesus, and so then you'll say not one stroke of a letter of the law passes away because the law is fulfilled in Jesus. Of course, that would have to be the moral law. Then you have to separate out the moral, the ceremony, and the civil, civil, which is real hard to do here because Luke 16, 17 says not one stroke of a letter, not one stroke of a letter in the law, not one jot or tittle as the King James has it. That refers to all the law, not just the moral law, because there was lots of laws in there. Had to do with civil government, had to do with ritual, sacrificing animals and all that. 
That includes all of that. So Jesus said, not one of those provisions are going to pass away until all is accomplished. That's going to happen when Jesus dies. I don't think he's talking about the moral law that lasts forever until the end of time. That's the standard reform position, and it's so weak. That's one reason why I reject the standard reform position and take a new covenant theology position on that particular verse. For one thing, separating out the moral, civil, and ceremonial law is very hard to do. It's arbitrary. Here's a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Quote, the expression, till all be fulfilled, is much the same in meaning as it shall be had in undiminished and enduring honor from its greatest to its least requirements. That doesn't sound like you're separating out the moral from the rest of it. Again, this general way of viewing our Lord's words here seems far preferable to that doctrinal understanding of them which would require us to determine the different kinds of fulfillment which the moral and the ceremonial parts of it were to have. In other words, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown are dumping on the Reformed interpretation. May God bless them. The book of Hebrews doesn't make the distinction between civil, judicial, excuse me, uh, civil, ceremonial, and moral. It just says the law's done away with, the whole book. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does the Bible distinguish civil, ceremony, and moral. Smallest letter and stroke doesn't sound like moral aspect only. It sounds like all of it. In fact, you can go back and find a nice passage. I've done it in another place in one of my videos where you just take the Moses law, Mosaic law and read about a page of it, and all through it is scattered, civil, moral, and ceremonial. How you separate it out is totally arbitrary. So no, he's saying that the Old Testament law is here until all of it is here until it's all done away with when all things are accomplished. But anyway, that's a theological controversy, not for here. The main point is, is that Jesus is trying to establish, I'm not against the law of Moses. And now we go to verse 18 and come up with another situation where Jesus could be seen to be violating the law of Moses. Verse 18, chapter 16 of Luke. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now we ought to read also in another occasion, and it's not a parallel, but it's another occasion, and by the way, all this we're doing is still in the Perean ministry of Jesus. I forgot to mention that. It's near the end of his ministry, he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And there are no parallel passages, according to Robertson's Harmony. Matthew 5, 31 through 32 says this, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, of course, the issue of adultery is bodaciously complicated. I'm going to try to simplify. I've already gone over this in my audios on Matthew. I'll try to summarize it here real quickly and, and show you why there's a problem. First of all, Moses in Exodus 20, excuse me, Deuteronomy 24.1, we find the law of Moses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and what does that mean? And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of it from his house. So here we have, and then we've got another thing that complicates the situation is the Pharisees themselves were divided between a liberal school and a conservative school. Jesus basically interpreted Moses as, or, or interpreted God's will, let's put it that way, in favor of the Shammai, the, the, the conservative strict school of divorce. So you've got all kinds of different possibilities here. Moses, if, if, if Moses says it's all right to divorce her for indecency, if indecency is adultery, well, then that's basically what Jesus said. So Jesus is not contradicting Moses at all. 
But if, on the other hand, indecency is interpreted as something minor, like frivolous reasons, Josephus wiped, divorced his wife because he didn't like her manner. She dressed her food wrong. If he saw a woman prettier than his wife and all that nonsense, you know, it's a stupid reason. So, so that's one way you can interpret the indecency. So the question is, is what is happening with Moses? That's the first problem. In my opinion, Moses is probably talking about the frivolous kinds of reasons for indecency because Jesus said Moses allowed the divorce because of the hardness of, of your heart. Well, I mean, you know, Jesus is allowing divorce too for adultery, and so he would not, so it seems like he's distinguishing. Jesus, Jesus himself is distinguishing his view from Moses' view. Jesus is saying, I'm giving it to you for adultery, a serious reason. Moses gave it for frivolous reasons, but he had a reason for doing that because of the hardness of Moses's of, of the people's heart. Moses was a legislature. He had to deal with real people, most of whom were not believers in God, most of whom were very sinful. And so he had to regulate divorce as much as he could. And so he said, well, I'm going to make you give a certificate. If you're going to divorce her for some stupid reason, I'll make you give a, a certificate so she'll be protected so she can get married again. And, you know, that's not saying he favored divorce any more than because he had to regulate polygamy or slavery, that he, that he favored polygamy or slavery. It's just that it had to be regulated, so he did it. All right, so if Moses is advocating easy divorce but with a certificate, then in the New Testament times, the pharisaical schools of Hillel and Shammai divided on what Moses meant by indecency. The liberal school, Hillel, said he meant any kind of frivolous thing. And I think the Hillel school was right as far as interpreting Moses. But the problem is, is they went and said, and they put that in their law and their traditions and their, their teaching and said, that, and that it ought to be that way now. And Jesus is going to jump on that and say, no, it ought not to be that way now, because at the beginning, there was only Adam and Eve, and there was no divorce. The Shammai school, the conservative school of the Pharisees, said that, that Moses only allowed divorce for adultery, the indecency that Moses said that would cause, give grounds for divorce. The, that indecency was adultery, according to the Shammai school. Now, Jesus ended up defending the Shammai school as far as what divorce ought to be, only for adultery. I'm not sure he endorsed the Shammai school as for their interpretation of what Moses said, but the point is, is that Jesus is not trashing the law of Moses. He's saying, look, if Moses gave a certificate, it was because of the heart of the heart. In the beginning, there was no adultery. I believe in, you know, the Old Testament, and I'm not trying to trash Moses' law. Now, of course, if Moses had, and I don't believe that this is what Moses was saying, but if Moses was taking the strict view that you could only divorce for adultery, then in that case, Jesus would be, could say that he was attacking the loose, easy views of Hillel, attacking the Pharisees, but he's not attacking Moses. So this, that, the, the permutations and combinations of, uh, of this, of the different positions that people take in this controversy make it very, very difficult to decide what exactly is going on. But I think that what we can finally decide is, is that Jesus was not against Moses. He didn't, he, he, he was not opposing Moses. If he was opposing anything, he was opposing the laws of Hillel, the Hillel Pharisees, the liberal Pharisees who were saying it was okay to divorce for any reason. He was attacking that, but he was not attacking Moses. And again, that's the point of why these two verses are tossed in here in my opinion, right in the middle of some very serious attacks on the Pharisees. All right, let's move on to Luke 16, verse 19. We'll get into the parable of Lazarus and Dives. Verse 19 of Luke 16, There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, 
feasting lavishly every day. Now the rich man is called Dives because of the Latin for rich man is Dives. And so that's passed down in Christian tradition. So I'm going to call him Dives instead of the rich man. And by the way, is this a parable or not? People debate this till the cows come home. I really don't care. It sounds like a parable to me. It's got Abraham talking instead of Jesus or God. So that sounds like a parable. And it just it just has all the story elements to a parable. So I don't know why people get so upset about this. This you know why they make such a big deal a deal about it. Adam Clark and NIV Study Bible take no position. They say we don't know. I guess that means they don't care either. The argument of against it being a parable, it would be the only parable in which Jesus names one of the characters. Well, that's the NIV Study Bible. Well, so what? He names one of the characters in the parable. In the parable, that makes it not a parable because he named one of the par- speakers. That's just a coincidence, in my humble opinion. Luke doesn't actually say it's a parable, but I think there's a lot of parables. The, the the gospel writer who reports the parable doesn't say this is a parable. Maybe I haven't really checked that out. I, I wouldn't swear to that. I wouldn't be surprised though. In fact, my memory tells me that when he was in the home of the Pharisees, he just told the story. He didn't say it was a parable. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I'm going to assume it is a parable for this discussion here. Dives was wearing purple and fine linen, which of course is your typical garments of the rich. And again, this is a parable that deals with God and mammon, the Pharisees' lust for money. Verse 20 and 21, But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. In other words, there was nothing that fell from the rich man's table for Lazarus to eat. He was comforted only by dogs who would lick his sores. Now, dog saliva has healing properties. That's why they lick their wounds. That's where we get the expression, lick your wounds. And so the dogs were doing Lazarus, the poor man, a favor by licking his sores to heal them up. Small comfort. He was starving to death. He was left at the gate. That means he was laid down, put down there by somebody else. Probably the idea he was put there so that the rich man might help him out. All right, so here you have an extreme contrast between the rich man, Dives, and the poor man, Lazarus. Extreme rich, uh, extreme wealth, and extreme poverty. We go to verse 22 in Luke 16. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. Now he died because he didn't have any food because Dives didn't feed him. The rich man also died and was buried. So they're both dead. The poor man was carried away to Abraham's side. KGV says Abraham's bosom. The Talmud refers to Abraham's bosom as the place of blessedness where the righteous dead go, as the NIV Study Bible reports where they go to await future vindication. The Talmud also calls it a paradise. Well, John Gill says it's heaven. That's what it is. It's heaven. He went to heaven. Luke 16, verses 23 and 24. And being in torment in Hades, he, that's Dives, the rich man, looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. And Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am agony. I am in agony in this flame. Well, before we get into the main point here, let's take care of some subsidiary details. First of all, Dives is in flame if Hades is hell, which I'll talk about in a minute. If Hades is in hell, then you got flame, but then other places it's called the place of outer darkness, and so the metaphors contradict, and that's why I think this is a parable, because if you want to use this for doctrinal truth, hey, hell has flame, how are you going to handle the contradiction with hell is out of darkness. I think this is a symbolic of the agony that hell is, not necessarily literally that it was burning fire. And people can debate that all they want. 
but it's just one more indication to me that this is a parable, not a recitation of events that actually happened. Now let's talk about Hades. The NIV translates that as hell because of the torment that's happening there. Actually, the Greek is Hades, and, has, and there's a distinction between Hades and hell. Hades is used a lot of times in the Greek for the shadowy place of the dead. Sometimes it refers to the grave, like he'll rest in Hades means he's going to rest in his grave. Sometimes it refers to death in general. Here it's associated with agony and punishment, and that's why the NIV, I'm sure, translated as hell. They did put in their margin the Greek was Hades. Hell is Gehenna, which is the place where they would burn trash and corpses outside in the Valley of Hinnom on the south of Jerusalem. It's a good metaphor because it's, it meant torment, but I don't. I, it doesn't really mean too difference. The difference between Hades and hell doesn't make too much difference here, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown take point out, because the main idea is that he's in torment in one place and bliss, and Dives is in torment in one place, and Lazarus is in bliss in the other, heaven and hell. And again, I do I do not believe in this holding tank theology where you divide hell up into Hades and hell, and you go into heaven and divide it up into paradise and to Tartarus and to, uh, I forgot. And Jesus died on the cross, and he went down into hell, and he went down into Hades and all this. No, just, just keep it simple. Heaven and hell. Now, Hades has the same torments of hell here in this story, this parable that Lazarus, Lazarus and Dives, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Dives is suffering fire, he's suffering agony, and he's suffering, he's suffering separation from God and his loved ones. Well, there's scriptures that show that hell is just like that. Fire, Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. Agony, Revelation 14.11. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There's no rest day or night. Separation from God and loved ones, Matthew 8:12. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. I was talking about the Pharisees and such. Will be thrown into the outer darkness. So, Dives was in the bad place. We want to get around the problem of high Hades and hell. He was in the bad place. And he wanted a little comfort, a little water to cool his tongue. We go to verse... Uh, Jameson, Foss, and Brown point out that Davies was hurting so bad he would take just a second's worth of comfort. Just one little drop of water on my tongue. Again, this sounds like a parable because it's written with such extreme contrast. It's written in a literary, literary style. Verse 25 and 26. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things. Son, is Abraham's talking to Davies, the rich guy. During your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things but now he is comforted here that's in heaven with abraham he is comforted him he comforted here while you are in agony besides all this a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot neither can those from there cross over to us now when abraham calls him son that's according to the flesh not according to the spirit not spiritually of course because Abraham was Jewish and Dives was Jewish, but Abraham was a believer in God and Dives was not. So spiritually, they were not father and son. Notice that this parable here gives hope for those who suffer in this life. Lazarus suffered, but by golly, he was in a wonderful place in heaven. We have got to hold on to that in our Christianity, that in heaven, all suffering will be made right. All those who suffer will be blessed and there will be an eternal bliss is something that cannot be emphasized too much in this parable emphasizes that and the fact that abraham said there's a chasm between lazarus 
and divies and you can't pass from one place to the other, that knocks in the head pretty good the idea that there's salvation for sinners after death. Once you're there, you ain't getting, you're not crossing that chasm and getting into heaven. It's over. It's appointed for man to die once, as the book of Hebrews says, assuming that's a good way to translate that. You've had it, folks, once you die. So the idea is this life is a probation. You're going to believe in Jesus or you're not going to believe in Jesus. Luke 16, 27 through 28. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house. This is Davies talking to Abraham. Davies calls Abraham father, father Abraham. I beg you to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. This is the first time that Davies has ever showed concern for others, according to the NIV Study Bible. I think that's right. He's given up on himself, but he said, I got five brothers. Oh, God, please don't let them come down to this place of torment, hell, torment. You know, what we don't like to talk about today. Andy Stanley won't mention that because he might offend somebody in his sinner-friendly, excuse me, seeker-friendly church. Luke 16, verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Now, this implies that Moses and the prophets have the way of salvation, have the way to keep, keep you out of heaven and put you into he- keep you out of hell and put you into heaven. It implies that. And this would encourage me, if I had the time, to go do a Bible study in the Old Testament to find out what in the Old Testament can teach us of heaven, hell, and resurrection. There's no question that the Old Testament talks about getting saved and, and justification by faith. No question about that. But I don't know how particular the Old Testament talks about heaven, hell, and resurrection. Basically just talking about belief. I had a friend of mine ask me that question. Where in the Old Testament can you prove all this stuff? And I assumed that it was in there. And I started thinking, well, wait a minute. I, that's not exactly what was said here. Abraham never said that you can find out about heaven and hell by reading Moses and the prophets. But you can find out about salvation by reading Moses and the prophets. No question. Abraham believed God and it was righteous. Moses and the prophets, of course, stands for all the Old Testament, not just the book of Moses, not just the law. It's the whole Old Testament. So they had it. They had all that stuff, all those oracles of God given to them, and they didn't believe. And so what Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees here is, look, it's impossible for these five brothers to escape hell because even if somebody like Lazarus rose again from the dead, walked into their house and said, look at me, man, I'm in heaven, and your brother's down there roasting in hell, they still wouldn't believe. And so what Abraham is saying in this parable is, your brothers are so hard-hearted, they can't believe when the evidence is right in front of their face. And, of course, the implication is, you Pharisees, when Jesus rises from the dead and he's right in your midst, you still ain't going to believe. And you Pharisees ought to be believing now because you have Moses and the prophets, but you don't believe. So here you have Moses, prophet, the old, whole Old Testament, and Jesus himself rising from the dead, and they don't believe. So this is what, this is what he's getting at. And by the way, going back to our, uh, our secondary theme here, is that Jesus is trying to say very clearly, look, I'm not attacking Moses and the prophets. I believe Moses and the prophets. I believe Moses and the prophets have the way of salvation. And you're not listening to them. I'm attacking the traditions of the Pharisees because you've covered over Moses and the prophets with your stupid legalistic traditions. But you've got to understand, I believe in Moses and the prophets. And so you guys, you Pharisees, ought to be listening to them. Remember, he's speaking this to Pharisees here. Luke chapter 16, verses 30 through 31, and we'll close it down. No, Father Abraham, he said, he being Dives, the rich guy roasting in Hades, roasting in hell. No, Father Abraham, he said, 
But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Someone from the dead, that would be Lazarus. And he's just thinking, hey, if somebody comes from the dead, they will repent. But he, Abraham, told him, Dives, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So Abraham reaffirms the proposition that Moses and the prophets are enough for salvation. If they're not going to believe that, they're not going to believe even somebody rises from the dead. Now, of course, the implication here is Jesus, they have Moses and the prophets already, and Jesus is going to rise from the dead, and he is going to present even more proof, and they don't believe, and they're not going to believe. So Jesus is actually kind of predicting here these Pharisees are not going to believe even if when I rise from the dead and come into their presence. The rich man knew he was so hard-hearted that he didn't hadn't listened to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures. But he figured his brothers, and he figured his brothers would be the same. They're not going to listen. So we need something better than the scriptures. We need Lazarus walking, walking in there and telling them, raising from the dead. And Abraham says, "No, nah, you don't understand. You people are so sunk. You Davies and your brothers are so sunk in your sin. You're not going to believe even if somebody came from the dead." And of course, the point is. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you people are so sunk in your sin and your hard-heartedness and your callous spirits, you are so depraved that you're not going to believe when I rise from the dead and come to you. That, ladies and gentlemen, should do it. That's the end of Luke chapter 16. We will continue in our next audio and start in chapter 17 where Jesus bashes the Pharisees some more, talks about them being stumbling blocks, and then he talks about faith and increasing the disciples' faith. We'll take that up next time. I hope you enjoyed this audio.